Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. Before European settlement, tall grass prairie was the dominant ecosystem in what would become Iowa. It covered 80 to 85 percent of the land, and now it covers less than 0.1 percent. But as more and more people learn about the benefits and beauty of native plants, more people are making prairie plants and other natives part of their landscape, and you can do it too. Pauline Drobny is going to help us learn how. She is a prairie and savanna biologist working with the Iowa landscape in many ways over the years. She's also one of the people who brought the prairie back to the Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge. Pauline, welcome to the show. Good morning, Charity. Good to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And I think, you know, in planting a tall grass prairie, whether it's a pocket prairie or something bigger, we are often returning the land to its native ecosystem. And I think that leads some people to think that will be an easy process. It's not that simple, is it? No, it's not. And you know, it, to, to some degree, you can make it as easy or complicated as you want. And it depends on how big of a place you're trying to plant. But yeah, there's it, it requires care, care and feeding um, and uh, a long-term kind of investment in that sort of thing. Whenever we talk about planting things on this show, we talk about finding the right spot for the plants. Now, knowing that Tallgrass Prairie covered the majority of the state, it kind of sounds like everything would be a good spot for a Tallgrass Prairie. But how do you pick the right location? Well, you know, to plant a tall grass prairie in a in a like if you're planting a larger sort of you're doing it in a larger scenario, um, an acre or or a hundred acres or more, um, I I look for a place that used to have prairie. I mean, that's a pretty simple. Um, metric to to think about how it was. And and as you said, most of it did have prairie. The trick is to have the right seed for the right place because a wet prairie will require a very different sort of seed mix than a dry prairie that you plant on, let's say, sand or limestone. And much of what we have in Iowa is um, actually somewhere in between what they call mesic, mesic soil, which is moist, but it well, it's well-drained. So it, it, this water sinks in when the rain falls. So how do you look at this land and, and engage with the land to figure out what kinds of seeds are the right seeds? Well, uh, the first thing, of course, is just to go out to the site and look around and see what kind of soil is there. Um, you can also look at soil maps and see if there are, you know, there's, um, if you look at the um, uh, USDA, I think it's USDA, NRCS soil maps, they have uh, an, an indication of whether they were once prairie soils or not. And so that's another place you can start. Those maps are online and there are in libraries, books that have just nothing but soils maps in there that you can kind of uh, look up and find that kind of thing. And then once you have figured out, let's say I go out and I see I've got some nice black soil there, um, I think this is going to be a music prairie. Then I would go to a, um, a 
in my mind, I mean, I have this in my head now, but, you know, the to, to, to find a source of, of a list of music prairie plants, those, those ones that would match that black soil that's kind of moist, not wet. And nowadays, there are a lot of sources for prairie seeds. I know, Pauline, that when you first started planting prairies, that was not the case. But now there are a lot of opportunities for buying these seeds, right? There are. There's a lot of vendors out there. The thing that I would recommend for an Iowan who is wanting to plant a prairie is let's plant Iowa seed. And when I say that, of course, there are all the species that should be in Iowa uh, or that once were in Iowa, maybe right on this plot of land you're going to plant. But there's more than just the appropriate species. I would like to see the appropriate Genetics. So, in other words, when you're planting a prairie, you can do good by making sure the species are the ones that once were there. But if we take, um, get species that came from remnant prairies, those are those little pieces that of scraps of land that still remain from that once vast, beautiful prairie. Um, if we take care to get seeds that have that genetic history as well. We can do a lot of good by preserving not only the right species, but also the right genetic material. And actually, that's a kind of a big deal. And the, and the genetics do change even within Iowa from place to place. Um, and so you can, you can uh, uh, not only assure that those are the most adaptable for your place, but also, you know, do, do good by the, um, by the prairie, I guess, by, and preserve it on your own plot of land. So when we want to plant prairie seeds, we are in a time of year that, that's one of the times that is good for planting prairie seeds. Tell me why this is a time of year when we should think about planting those seeds. Well, this is a great place, a great time of year to be thinking about planting prairie seeds. And if you think about it, it just makes sense because what's happening right now What's happening right now, if you go out to a prairie remnant, you know, go to Hayden Prairie or, or Cedar Hill Sand Prairie, or one of the prairies that are still around in Iowa, you'll notice there's an awful lot of plants that are shedding seeds. Some of those seeds are little fluffy things that kind of float in the wind. Other ones are, are held in these little vases with, with different shapes of seeds that when the wind blows, the, the vase tips and the seeds fall out. And others stick to you, and if you want to collect some of those, you just wear a nice wool sweater and walk through it, and you can plant your sweater. <laughs> just kidding about that, but it's but this is the time of year when there's a lot of species that are are um, uh, dropping their seeds. Now, I want to be clear though, there are seeds that are being dropped uh, that are ripe and ready to plant at every time of the growing season. So there's a spring things that you'll miss by collecting seeds now. But if you are collecting seeds now, you're going to get a really nice representation of those species. And if they are making ripe seeds now, now is the time to plant them because they would be naturally falling on the ground to start new plants. Now, if you're starting a prairie on something that, let's say it's a harvested farm field, then there's not other stuff growing there. But almost every other place that you're going to plant a prairie, there will be other stuff growing there already. How do you prepare the ground for your prairie seeds? If it is one of those places that is a a former cropped field, 
you know, most people these days don't do too much more. You can't. Some people like to, if it's corn, they like to kind of do a light tillage just to get the debris in the ground and 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 in the in the idea that you have a smoother surface to sow seeds on. However, I know people, um, professionals who do this sort of work, who say, "Oh my goodness, I got my best catch on prairie seeds in this prairie planting when I just." sowed right over the right over the corn stalks so you can do it either way um, uh, if you have something where there's already something else in there let's say we have an old pasture one of my very favorite plant places to plant it's um so on my land uh, which I live out in the country and have 30 acres and there was it was really beat up land um, but there were some brome fields that were pretty nice there if you if you like brome brome is not a native plant species, but it's one that's used a lot for forage for livestock. Well, the thing f- that I did and that I've seen work so well is if you can burn, to burn that brome, you burn it about three years in the springtime, and the brome, you know, it starts subtly changing, and then it, it changes a little bit more. What I mean by that is it gets a little bit more yellow. Uh, the height starts to decrease, and you start noticing that there's not so many seed seed heads anymore. And then at a certain point, there will be some annuals start coming up, like those little, not the giant ragweeds usually, but the, the, the shorter western or common ragweeds that are a couple feet tall. And it's telling you something. You know, if you read the landscape, if you learn to lead, read the landscape, it'll talk to you. And, you, and, and that's telling me that it's receptive to seed. So now's a good time to plant in that year. However, you can probably plant earlier than that. But that's that's the way I like to do it. And, you know, from the, my experience in planting on my land, um, it's been one of the more satisfying places to plant because um, there have been some surprises that have come up in the, in the brome, hidden in the brome, where these little tiny panic grasses. They're maybe about six inches tall, hard to get the seed from uh, in a lot of cases, but they're just there. And um, uh, in a lot of cases, I couldn't guarantee they would be on, on your piece of land. But And then do you diversify with overseeding? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I waited to see. I mean, I didn't wait too long. I started planting in my brome field probably right away, but there were things that came up and uh, I started planting, you know, the lead plant and the pale purple cone flowers and the blazing stars. The blazing stars do absolutely fabulously well, just scattered in the winter or in early spring, um, just after the snow has melted. There's still that freeze-thaw action happening in the soil. And, of course, prairie seeds do need to have this after-ripening process that is uh, and seed dormancy breaking that happens with cold temperatures. So and planting so, in the fall or the winter gives them that opportunity. They do. And even in the early spring, when there's still, you know, you, you get that, that everything feels like it's springtime, but the night times are still cold. And so I've had pretty good luck even planting in, let's say in March, of course, our weather, <laughs> it depends on the year. We can get pretty warm weather in, in March. But even in March, I get p- 
pretty good success. And unlike the almost instant gratification of a garden where (laughs) you see things coming up and you know what they are, uh, prairies take a lot of patience, don't they? They do. They do take a lot of patience. And I, again, I just say that if you are watchful, you know, and and, um, you know what to look like, you'll start seeing some things happening. And there are some plants like um, black-eyed Susan or maybe the uh, um, false sunflower, uh, which are very sweet yellow um, daisy flowers that are kind of like the first smiles of prairie, and they're telling you things are going well. Prairie and savanna biologist Pauline Drobny. For more gardening information and tips, you can subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, but we are doing things a little bit differently. All this hour, we are focusing on native plants. So maybe you've always dreamed of creating your own pocket prairie. Maybe you've got a prairie that has been entirely taken over by cup plants or another species. Maybe you're losing the fight against invasive plants. Maybe you've planted native plants in a pollinator garden or you're using them as ornamentals. We are here to answer your questions today. You can call 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. 100. Pauline Drobny is here with me. She is a prairie and savanna biologist. She's also a contributor to the recent book, Tending Iowa's Land, edited by Connie Mutel. And uh, Kelly Norris is also here, a self-employed planting designer, former director of horticulture and education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. Kelly, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you both so much for being here. And there's still so much to talk about with uh, prairies and, and how they develop and, and prairie management. Um but I, I'll, I'll, we'll get back to that in a moment. But Kelly, I want to ask you, you work with a lot of people who are, are working on their urban landscape or their urban yards and gardens. Have you found that a lot more people are wanting to incorporate native plants? Absolutely. I think one of the things that's kind of remarkable about uh, all the changes in our culture that have maybe happened in the last few years is that there's been a remarkable curiosity and upswelling of interest uh, among homeowners and home gardeners and even public land managers and uh, landscape maintenance professionals in, in all of the possibilities uh, for what native plants and our native landscapes can inspire in the more horticultural settings of the urban environment. And, you know, we've learned a lot about how, of course, native plants can support pollinators and people care a lot more about pollinators than they used to. But there are a lot of other reasons to plant native plants. Kelly, why do you think it's important? Well, I think it, it helps to connect us to a, a story of place. Uh, you know, I, I, however people get into uh, gardening with native plants is, is, is sort of wonderful. Whatever gateway they come through is great. But I think what it does is open people up to the reality that uh, there is a story of our landscapes, that there there is a, a sense of place, a, a, a meaning to place, you know, 
places, obviously, uh, something humans have come up with. It's, it's physical space that we give meaning to. But that sense of place can tell us so much about not only our natural heritage, but the ecology of the place as it once was, and perhaps the ecology of the place as it could be into the future. And so uh, I think the, 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 this interest that is out there is, uh, is a, just a remarkable turning point in our cultural conversation around people and plants and place. And Pauline, of course, you've focused more on prairie or savanna reconstruction in your career. But what would you say to a homeowner? Why plant native? Oh, well, for one thing, it gives you some of the same benefits that you get when you plant one on acres because it connects you to place. You know, it connects you to heritage. And, you know, I I don't know anybody that I've talked with who has been interested in doing this who hasn't just all of a sudden just, you know, um, found this tremendous connection. And so I think that it's we have in us, I think, this inherent need to connect to the natural landscape. And so putting a, a, a piece in our gardens or out on a larger landscape, if you have that ability and interest, is really a great way to, to reconnect. And we were talking earlier about the, the diversity of a prairie. And when you plant a tall grass prairie or a savanna, I mean, you want that diversity. Kelly, in our yards, a lot of people, even if they want to plant native plants, they still want to sort of play by the rules that they've always planted by, where mm-hmm. they want, you know, a, a certain... A look where they have ornamental grasses, like just a stand of big blue stem. When when you help people with this, how do you how do you deal with that? Because that's not the way that native plants were. Well, you know, I think one of the things we're always trying to do in our practice is to blur the boundaries between horticulture and ecology. And I I think one of the things that we try to do, I try to do in in my work in public and private place is to push the overall diversity of the planting towards a a higher level than we would traditionally uh, plant. I think what's interesting is that there are some, you know, maybe kind of uh, false ideas around what happens when you put more diversity in place. You know, the standard design thinking goes, is that oh it, it gets you know it's too busy it's too much it's it's easy to overwhelm people's ability to to read and understand the landscape but but that's not entirely true. If 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 you take a somewhat artistic approach to uh, you know a, a page from the the book of what nature offers us, you know we go to wild places and can feel emotions and you know romantic sort of sense of place uh, when we see large expanses of something in flower. Look at the the super bloom phenomena of uh, the last uh, uh, growing season across much of the western U.S. because of all the rainfall out there. I mean we we go to these wild places to to celebrate and revel in abundance and diversity. And, and we can do that at home, too. So we, we can easily start to increase the diversity of plants that we bring into the landscape and also have something that's beautiful and legible. So we, we can do both. Just before the break, Pauline, I, I talked about how a prairie takes patience. And I think we need to, we, we were already starting to get a lot of questions, and we will get to those in a moment. But I do think we need to talk through that process a little bit. Uh, it has been said that, you know, only a mother can love a first-year prairie uh, <laughs> because think, things can look pretty scruffy. So how do you nurture that as, as the prairie becomes what it's supposed to be? 
Well, many times people will actually mow, use mowing as a tool to allow plants to get established. And so what happens in that first year is you get a lot of seed that's in the seed bank and in our current environment, most of the soil has a lot of weeds, a lot of them that are not, they're not native even, a lot of them. And um, um, when I say weeds, I'm talking about something that really it doesn't belong in the native landscape. And, and so if you mow, um, it takes the competition out a little bit. And, um, um, but what we found in some research at Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge is it wasn't only just shade, which is what a lot of people thought it was the competition for light, but it, we found that it was incredibly linked to water. And it makes sense if you think of these big weeds, then uh, they're they're sucking a lot of water mm-hmm. out of the mm-hmm. out of the ground. And you know those little prairie plants that are trying to put roots down first before they get a big leafy structure um, are are they they we want to favor them, right? So if we keep the, those fast growing annual weeds, which will grow in a year and make seed, and the, the prairie plants, most of the ones we plant are not going to be that sort. They take time. And so that's that's one way you can do it. And, and, so, you know, and with mowing, how often, what height? So if you mow, um, you know, it, it, depending on if you're in a, on a larger landscape or, or in town, um, you know, keeping it down to you let it go to about 12 inches and then cut it back to uh, about four, three or four inches. And that still allows those plants, those little plants to grow. Uh, you might cut them off a little bit, but they're, they're still going to be just fine. And would you do that just for the first year, first summer? Well, there was a little research that was done over at UNI. And uh, what they found was, you know, there's conventional wisdom is to do it for two years, but they found that one year was enough. Uh, so that's that's all that's necessary. And then that's good news for a lot of people because, again, yes, when is. you put in all this work, you want to see results. And that first year, you just don't see that much. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I just have one thing to add for that, Charity, because okay. it depends. Yeah, It really depends on how you do it. And a lot of the work that we did over at Neil Smith Refuge, we, we started out just um, – you know, we were kind of inventing the book in a way on that that large of a scale as we were doing, and um, and and trying to emulate historic systems. But what we found was, you know, we started out doing the traditional drilling practice, and and in the fall or in the springtime, what what we have found through time is that things I noticed in the very first season of growth, that is year one of planting if in, in plantings that we uh, did in, in fall or in the winter. Um, I was seeing, and this seems incredible to even say, but um, uh, uh, some of the, pra- the uh, purple prairie clovers, the uh, butterfly milkweed, uh, there were several blazing stars bloomed the very first year. Wow. So it depends on how you do it. And that was with broadcast seeding, not drilling. So broadcast seeding meaning just sort of flinging the seed out, either by some kind of a machine like a Vicon spreader or with your hands. Yeah. 
Kelly, it sounded like you had something you wanted to add to that. Well, I was going to say, you know, that we have a great cohort of native annuals uh, in our flora, which can be incredibly useful from the design standpoint of incorporating into mixes or even into planting schemes or even hybrid approaches of planting and seedings if it's on a smaller footprint. And so, you know, really leveraging those those annual natives like Rebecca Herta being kind of maybe the obvious one, our native black-eyed Susan, uh, the annual or biennial, relatively short-lived, but, you know, can come in and be quite colorful that very first year while other things are kind of filling out uh, their niche uh, and developing uh, as, you know, longer, longer-lived perennials. And a partridge pea. Partridge pea as well. Absolutely. We love, we, we love an annual legume. We love Rebecca Herta. We, you know, there's actually our native annual cohort is, is sort of, you know, vastly underused and I think underutilized. Agreed. And it's, it's uh, uh, you know, we, we think about annuals being things we put in containers like petunias and zinnias. The irony, of course, is both of those plants are, are, are you know, native to the Americas. I mean, there's actually an incredible palette of native annuals to this continent that, uh, and, and of course, our region here in the Midwest that uh, we, we, we still haven't quite gotten around to yet, that we, we that needed a spotlight moment. Yeah, and Kelly, don't you think that those, those have, haven't you also found that something like a partridge pea in those times when things aren't going right, they'll seed into those bare spaces? They're and, very helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they make us look good sometimes. They do. They do. <laughs> so uh, talking again about mowing, and we're going to talk about fire in a little while. But Kelly, I mean, if you're in town, mowing is really your only option a lot of the time. Can you grow a tall grass prairie with only mowing with no fire management? Well, you can. I mean, it's going to it's not going to be a direct analog, perhaps, of uh, tall grass prairie on the extent of something like Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge. And so I think at that point, the context is important, right? It, the The plant community that evolves in that place as a result of your planting or seeding efforts is uh, something of an abstraction. And, and, and that's fine because it's still uh, it's still a complex, structured place that that is a habitat for a great number of creatures and is densely covering the ground and all of those things that we would expect from the mosaic of wild plant communities wherever they are, uh, we can still accomplish. It, it just may not necessarily be always that poster child in that way because mowing has something of a bias towards some kinds of plants, for example, and one of those being grasses. So you have to be somewhat mindful about the density of grasses as that they are initially used in, in, a, in a situation where you only have mowing available. Uh, so, you know, there's just trade-offs like that, too. The, I think the thing for that I would say to anybody out there listening about this is that, you know, th- there's not one method that's going to work on on a on hundred places if a hundred people are li- you know listening to this conversation. There's, there's, a, there's a series of methods and strategies that, that can evolve into a practice that become very site-specific and that you learn about it really through your own experiences with the place that you're working. And fire, of course, was a natural part of the tall grass prairie, although it wasn't. And, and I know that Native people often set fires purposely, but also there was lightning. There, there were other things that, mm-hmm. you know, that interacted in that way. Pauline, uh, we, of course, have harnessed fire. Um, how if you're using fire as a management tool, how often do you burn? Well, um, I'd say annually. It depends on, on uh, I guess, what you're trying to achieve and what you can do. But annually, the, the historically, Native peoples, if you look at the records that we do have, it indicates that they burned every year. Now, does that mean every single space burned? No, it doesn't. Um, because there's a patchiness, particularly if you do a fall burn. But um, the thing that burns this year doesn't burn, doesn't have as much fuel built up 
next year. And so if you wait three, so here's another reason to think about a more frequent an annual or every other year burn, and that is for invertebrates, for the insects, for the pollinators. And that sounds counterintuitive, but this very brilliant um, entomologist, Laura Rabica, um, uh, the most insightful entomologist along these lines uh, who understands management, she's out of Illinois, that I've ever uh, known of, um, says that she finds the most conservative, that means the ones that are just really, the invertebrates that really just need prairie, are only, mostly found on annually burned prairies. Now, if you burn, um, and she says if you wait, you know, like three years to burn again, what you have is this really hot fire. You've got all this duff built up, all the dead grass, and, and vegetation at the bottom, and so it really, it incinerates everything. So a more frequent burn um, allows for patches unburned this year, will burn next year, that sort of thing. And, it, and the season of the year, if it's in the fall, um, um, then you, you also have a little bit more moisture oftentimes. This year, not so much, it's pretty dry. And I wanna also note that fire is as necessary to a prairie as sunshine and rain. It just, it's just e evolved with those things. We have so many questions from listeners, and we are going to, to dive right in. You can join us as well, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And we'll try to do a quick question here um, from Jim. First, he says, uh, will Indian grass or goldenrod take over and dominate a prairie? <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> the short answer. Um, uh, but as I like to tell students when I'm teaching, I say, you know, it sort of depends, and it's the question of what it depends on. But those are two very aggressive species, uh, and uh, you know, honestly, uh, there are many types of goldenrod, so we should specify that there are some more aggressive species than others. But you know, in smaller, more medium settings, like in a residential landscape, those are those are. You know, as much as I love sorghum, yellow prairie grass, or uh, you know, often called Indian grass as well, uh, you know, it's difficult because it can seed around and become so aggressive. So we we we're, we're cautious about how we use that in smaller landscapes. All right, and we will talk more about what to do if you've got a, a species that is dominating your native plant space in after we do a break. But first, I'll ask Jim's second question, uh, Pauline: If I overseed now, can I burn my prairie this spring? Uh, overseed. I assume that means seeding into something that's already existing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you you can absolutely. Yeah, you can you can burn it in the spring. Now, if you wait a while to 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 burn it, um, and those little plants are germinating, you risk killing those little seedlings. So, uh, it it depends. It's if you have a lot of duff, you know. It, 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 you if and you mow, you can mow to remove that material, but then you can end up piling a lot on the seedlings that are trying to come mm. up. So it it sort of depends. And I just want to add one thing about the sure. the Indian grass and the and the um, goldenrod, because in the second or third year of Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge plantings, when we had about 900 acres of plants, there was all this goldenrod. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my goodness, do I need to spray that out or anything? And I just let it go. Yeah. And it went away. It uh, just, there's our seasons of things. All right. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Horticulture Day on Talk of Iowa. Today, we are talking about native plants. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, but we are doing things a little bit differently today. We are focusing entirely on native plants this hour. If you don't have native plant questions, don't worry. You can call next Friday. We'll be back to normal. But today with me, I have Kelly Norris. He is a self-employed planting designer, former director of horticulture and education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. He's also author of numerous books about gardening, including his most recent new naturalism, designing and planting a resilient, ecologically vibrant home garden. Also here, Pauline Drobny, a prairie and savanna biologist. She's also a contributor to the recent book, Tending Iowa's Land, edited by Connie Mutel. And they're here to answer your native plant questions. And before the break, we were talking about uh, certain species dominating a prairie landscape. And Mary in Fairfield has a question about that that we hear a lot on this show. So Mary, I'll let, I'll let you ask your question. What to do about cup plant? I planted it, but oh boy. Anyway, how <laughs> to prevent it over. Yeah, and so did you plant it in, in a prairie or did you plant them by themselves? I actually planted it up close to the house, and we have a three-acre prairie, no, a five-acre prairie, but I planted the cup plant up by the house and down by the wetland, and I've been digging it out. So anyway, I was wondering what to do. I, I like it, but it's too much. Yeah, cup plants can be very successful. Who wants to take that one? Well, we both looked at each other because we're sort of smiling here. It's, uh, you know, this, the, that genus, Silphium, uh, are, are known for producing a, a, a fair number of, of seeds. And I think the thing to remember about any native plant that anybody may be asking a question about is that, you know, just like us, plants exist in a context. And so when we when we sort of remove them from that context and sometimes put them in a maybe rather artificially uh, derived one, like a garden bed maybe close to the house, I'm making assumptions here, Mary, about your circumstances. But, you know, we, we sometimes tend to create a bias that favors maybe we could say the worst of their tendencies. And so when, when a plant like Silphium, which produces lots and lots and lots of seed, is in a rather rich environment like that, many of those seeds are going to germinate and grow. And I've, I'm, I'm speaking from that experience as well because, uh, you know, when I was a kid on the farm, I had a uh, cut plant in my garden as well. And I think my mother is still digging it out all these years <laughs> later. So, so, you know, one of the things, you know, with Silphium, what you can do is, you, I mean, uh, at a certain point after they've flowered, you can cut back the, the stalks and just prevent that seed from, uh, you know, going to the ground. Of course, the goldfinches may beat you to it, and they're, they're going to shatter a few around in the process. But that's probably for an established planting. The easiest way is just to cut off the, the seed stalks so that they don't shed all that seed. But uh, that it, it is a perennial plant, right? So the, the cup plants that are already there will come up. Well, there is that, yes. And I mean, the, the difference, the other thing to think about, too, is depending on how you're growing them. You know, this is a plant, again, that comes from a context of, of considerable competition, usually with grasses and, and, a, and, a, and a density of plants. And so if, there, if that density in some respect is absent from that garden, one of the quickest ways to start to weigh in on silphium is just to make it work for it. I mean, just is to put a little competition in play. And so maybe that's, 
increasing what what we call the matrix layer, right? That 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 veg- layer of vegetation closest to the ground, which would be the you know the canopy of a grass plant or something. That you know you could certainly increase the density of the planting to push a little put a little competition on the silphium, the cut plant that is. All right, uh, let's go to the phones. David is on the line in Grimes. Hi, David. Yeah, hello. Um, we did, uh, sort of you talked about earlier, we did, you know, hand seeding, and, and then we've also over time, uh, you know, manually planted some natives in our backyard, and we're pretty satisfied with that. Um, but my question is, you know, that plot of land between your sidewalk and the street, is there any advice and maybe how you can change that from your, you know, your grass and do something more native with that? The so-called hell strip uh, that exists in uh, uh, <laughs> suburban and urban environments. Uh, I actually sort of love those zones myself because they are—they're a very stressful place. So you think about it again through the lens of how plants live their life. You know that—that's a an area of the landscape that is getting all sorts of stresses from the environment. The soil is often compacted. There's salt spray uh, or sediment spray from the streets. It's—it's uh, it's kind of a rough and tumble place. But if you think about, uh, you know, when Pauline was talking in the first segment about sand prairies and and those kinds of precedents that we have in our natural history, we've got an incredible cohort of native plants that can actually tolerate a lot of those stressful circumstances quite well. Coming to mind are grasses like the grama grasses, you know, botaluas. There are plants that that want to be in those kind of tough and seemingly forlorn circumstances. And so, uh, and that's a great way too in a small space to, you know, just, you know, you you can really control the density of, of what you create there. You can fill up all the space and create something that, uh, you know, fills in rather quickly and, and shows people what's possible with native plants, too. I think that there's uh, one thing to be careful about is ordinances that you might have in your city. I when, Years and years ago, decades ago, in another lifetime, when I lived in Cedar Falls, I planted uh, in, the, in the very corner. I lived on a corner lot in the very corner where the sidewalks kind of cross over each other. That little corner, I thought, well, I'll just plant some black-eyed Susans there, mm. and the city showed up to say, uh, 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 you gotta go that, that's gotta go, and it happened to be, I think somebody complained that there were they were too tall. They really weren't very tall. They're maybe I don't know, a couple feet tall maybe, but so those, but it was not an ordinance, and the guy worked with me, and he was fine. But I had to get it out of there. Yeah. So watch your ordinances, and if you do have a height ordinance. I mean, I think it's delightful. I agree with you, Kelly. I think it's delightful to see things in there, and you might just try working with some of the shorter things. You know, your your um, old man's whiskers, and your, you know, the Kelly mentioned uh, Budalua, which is um, cytoats. Cytoats grama is a kind of a a pretty thing to grow there. But you could grow things that don't get quite so tall or quite pro- pro- provide that um, visual effect of density. Uh, here's a question from Rita. She says, we have 100 acres of prairie, wetland, and timber in Chickasaw County. We are fighting reed canary grass. Do you have any suggestions? Well, yeah, I do, actually. Um, it, depending on Now, reed canary grass is not really too tough an, of an actor in the draws. Now, the draws, uh, uh, the, those drainage areas that have... Um, uh, a lot of water running through them periodically often have reed canary grass at Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge. They did. They, we had all we inherited all kinds of reed canary grass, and fire was really the 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 
big thing and competition because reed canary grass won't go away unless there's something to replace it. But what I have learned, and I, and I again, I'm a proponent of frequent fire. Um, if you can burn an area with reed canary grass every year, then you really put the hurt on it. And it'll do things similarly to what I discussed with brome, but um, you need to have native plants in the mix and along the site. All these draws at the refuge have mostly disappeared um, and succumbed to prairie grass. Now, if it's in, or prairie plants, not just grass, um, a low, low land, you know, hydrology is so important. If you have a hydrology that has some um, uh, connection to natural hydrology left, um, in my experience, you can with fire, start replacing it with native species. In fact, there may be some hiding under the grass that uh, you can't even detect that are going to come back. Um, but if it's if it's right next to a, to a stream that with a deep incision, and what we've learned through hydrologic research at Neil Smith Refuge is that there's that's like a it's bleeding like the the water is bleeding out the side of this 12 foot deep canyon that is from caused by erosion through time. And so the space alongside that stream and, and further and for a ways back from it are going to be pretty tough. They're going to be pretty tough to to replace it with something else. But I'd also say get your cup plants out there. Get your um, you know those things that you think are just tough as nails. You know, get the get the prairie cord grass, get the blue joint grass, you know, get the the, those um, sawtooth sunflowers out there, let them do battle with that. So, and that, so that's, that's in the really tough places, I would put those, those kind of uh, species out there. In areas where it's more hydrologically okay, I put in, in the more delicate things or the things that are uh, really characteristic of such areas. Pauline, what, what's the invasive that you have the hardest time fighting off? Oh, so I think of invasives as sweets of, you know, the bad guys uh, the, the, and the really bad guys and then the ones that really don't matter. And, and the toughest ones are those that are not responsive to fire or some other management. And I would say things like Cerecia lespedeza, which is the common name, uh, sometimes called Japanese um, uh, lespedeza, things like um, uh, uh, um, there's a, a euphorbia, there's a Artemisia, the mugworts, and little I, I don't, I don't, the, yeah, but I, but I'm thinking about the things like, uh, um, um, well, what's the wetland one? That's the purple loosestrife. That's a bad yeah, one. Lithrum, yeah. Yeah, and um, um, so there's there's some like that. There's one that's related to a bachelor button that is absolutely horrible, um, and my mind is I'm drawing a blank here at the moment. But but those are the the ones that are not responsive to the tools we have, and to fire. Um, are the ones that for 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 Cerecia lespedeza, it grows, you know, 13 feet deep and go, can yeah. go 26 feet out to either side, and it it has allelopathic properties, which means it makes its own herbicide, mm. and so it 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 hits native plants and any other plants um, from a number of different directions, and if nothing is done about it, it would become just a solid stand. This, or there's a raspberry, a Japanese raspberry, that's absolutely horrible, either in shade or in sun. We don't want those. 
Uh, let's go back to the phones. Paul is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Paul. Yeah, I. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I, I had read somewhere in passing, and I can't remember where, and I was never able to find it again, but mentioned as far as prescribed burning goes that fall burning was, I believe they said, more beneficial to forbs and spring burning was more beneficial to grass. And I just didn't know if you guys had any insight on that. Oh, I would like to take that one. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and so I would think about it. Spring and fall is an easy shorthand way of thinking about it, but I think it's a, a more uh, useful to think about it as a dormant burn versus a growing season burn because then you get to read the landscape and what's going on. So dormant season burns, which would include what I think you're thinking of for a fall burn, is after all of the vegetation has gone dormant. You're not really seeing any or not much green left. And you're right. You really invigorate the the forbs um, because they're not they're not growing, you know, and 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 in the springtime, uh, when you when you burn, and we are in the growing season, so now you're starting to see a lot of things coming up. Um, you're hitting a lot of those forbs, and and the grasses are just l- gonna love it. And so, um, if you can burn during the gro- during a, a dormant season, um, and now you have the tools to know what that means, um, that would be what I would recommend. All right. Uh, Here is uh, another email question that we have. Um, I'm growing an example native garden bed in my front yard to show neighbors alternatives to lawn. The nature or the natural soil was stripped away by the developer. What remains is gumbo, a mix of clay and some stones. (laughs) Kelly, I hear you laughing. This is not (laughs) not an unusual situation. No, this is this is from Mark and Marion, by the way. And he says, I did add some compost to get them started. They're growing quite well and did very well in our severe drought here in Lynn County. As I expand the footprint, should I be using the compost in the soil prep stage? I use plugs, not seed? Uh, A helpful amount of information to answer that. Um, You know, here's the thing. Uh, Clearly, Paul's efforts show that there are plants, even in, again, the seemingly dire circumstances that can uh, adapt to the, the context of that place. And so, you know, one of the things we try to do when we're working with projects of, of any scale, and depending on where we're at, is we, we really just try, as to Paulina said, is to read the place. And, and and that means sometimes we don't do a lot in the traditional sense of preparing, quote unquote, a site for planting. Uh, you know, there are prairie natives, as Paul has uh, demonstrated already, it sounds like, that will grow in practically subsoil or gumbo clay or in really stressful circumstances. And you know, you, you really can't reverse engineer a soil setting. I mean, composting and 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 the organic matter that the plants that he already has that 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 will produce you know season after season, uh, you know year after year, that material will add and and develop and have some influence on the soil chemistry over time. Soil organic matter can actually accumulate on top of subsoil clay uh, rather quickly uh, in in just you know you know five to ten years and and change and shift the organic matter competition uh, in a considerable way. So I. I would just say, you know, my motto is just keep planting. <laughs> it's like you just just keep going. I mean, you've got a test example there. 
a great little experiment of what's already working. Let's just let's just keep going from that. And you know, if you, if you used a little compost in the beginning, just so it made it a little easier to get the plugs in the ground, you know, stick with that technique and just you know just keep at it. All right, we only have about a minute left, so uh, we'll try to squeeze this in. Julie in Iowa City says, "I planted prairie drop seed, dwarf prairie drop seed, and Northwind switchgrass earlier mm. this spring. They established quite well over the season. Should I cut them back for winter? And if so, when and how much?" Oh no, no. The the beautiful thing about grasses and Winter is that that that's that's the fourth season, but leave them, leave them until the end of the winter, and you know middle to the end of March, first of April, leave them. So you really get to enjoy you know the character of those grasses uh, in a cold season when we need something to look at out the window. So so don't no no, no cutting back grasses now. Save them until uh, end of the winter, early in the spring, and it, it's much more appropriate for their uh, you know kind of biology anyway. They're, they're happy to be cut back just before that warm growing season starts in the spring. All right, and prairie drop seed is so. Pretty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. All right. And in 30 seconds, what are some native shrubs that one can plant in the urban environment? Mm, I just have going to have to uh, suggest there is Spirea alba, mm, yeah. the um, meadowsweet, and uh, maybe the, the prairie willow. Oh, but, I was just about to say prairie willow yeah, is one of my right. uh, salix humilis is what is one of the great unsung shrubs. I would also add New Jersey tea, Cianothus americanus. With you on that. Yep. Oh, thank you both so much. This hour went far too fast, and I hope you'll both come back. We need to do this again sometime. Let's Please. do. Pauline Drobny is a prairie and savanna biologist. She's also a contributor to the recent book, Tending Iowa's Land, edited by Connie Mutel. Kelly Norris is a self-employed planting designer. And you can find out more about his work at his website, kellydnorris.com. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Danny Gear, Samantha McIntosh, and Caitlin Troutman. We had technical support today from John Pemble. You can get in touch with us anytime. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. Just search for Talk of Iowa wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back with Horticulture Day next Friday. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe. Have a great weekend.